Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 23. If you want to click there, flip there, whatever technology you're using. It says, then they told David saying, look, the Philistines are fighting against uh, Keilah and they're robbing the threshing floors. So David is on the run from King Saul right now. He's living as a fugitive. And he finds out that Keilah's being attacked by the Philistines. The enemies of the people of God are stealing their food. Um, when you steal somebody's food, the threshing floor would be a year's worth of food that you're just stealing from another group of people. Why do the Philistines do this? Because they can. Um, and they, they open the door. So it's interesting that the people go to David here and not to Saul. Because this is Saul's job. This is the king of Israel's job to protect the people of Israel. Uh, and they go to David in part because they, they go to the person that can actually do something about it. So David has a, a motley group of, of people with him. Uh, mostly he's become a refuge for the weak, for the indebted, for those people that are struggling. And now he becomes a protector. Verse 2, Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. This is the first of two inquiries that David makes. Again, we just got, we've gotten done with this series of chapters about Saul where he never inquires of the Lord. He just keeps making this dumb decisions because he doesn't inquire of the Lord. And when he does inquire of the Lord, it's too late. It's a little too little too late. So David goes right to the Lord right off the bat in verse 2. And in this, we see that David doesn't make a lot of bad decisions until we get to Bathsheba, right? But when he's inquiring of the Lord and just moving forward as he should as a king, he doesn't make bad decisions. He just keeps making good ones. So he has, there's a need, but then he wants God's command too. Saving Keilah is a good thing. By all, there's no, nothing bad about saving an entire city. But even when he's asked to do something good, he still inquires of the Lord. And I got to admit, I'll confess, I really struggle with this. When there's a good opportunity, my instinct is to say, yeah, sure, I'll help with that. I'll do that. And to discipline ourselves to say, not only do we need a need to be in place to go do something, we also need to inquire of the Lord, and there should be a Holy Spirit that blesses it. And if those three things aren't there, we probably shouldn't do it. It's not a good plan. But the way we see David do this, the need alone doesn't warrant the action, but the need plus inquiring of God does warrant the action. So he does it. Um, so it's 400 people versus the Philistinian army. This is a Gideon-like... The odds are not in David's favor, but David's a pretty good general. We've seen that. Verse 3, then David's men said to him, look, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Like it's bad enough running from Saul. You really want to pick another fight, David? Then David inquired of the Lord once again, second inquiry. And the Lord answered him and said, arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. We've seen this a couple times, and I've pointed it out each time. When the people of God inquire of God multiple times, we never see that as like a bad thing or a lack of faith. 
it's not David's lack of faith that gets him to inquire twice. And it's easy to read that and say, well, he's lacking faith here. But there's nothing biblically that says David did something wrong by asking twice. He's just getting confirmation. And God seems to be a big enough God to handle that from the people that are sincerely wanting God's will. And <laughs> he's got the need for Keely to get saved, God's command to go do it. He's got an instinct to go protect. The Holy Spirit's kind of working in his heart. But his men seem to be against him on it. And I, a wise person, even though they think they're right and they're going down that right path, it's really easy as a leader to say, we're going this way, I don't care what anybody thinks. The problem with that is that maybe that's God's way of speaking to you and saying back off on that particular activity. So when all of David's men who are trying to follow the Lord with him say, hey, we, we're not so excited about this fight, then David inquires another time. But this time God reaffirms it. God doesn't mind the confirmation. It's a hard thing. So yeah, let's get it confirmed before we go do this. And the second time God promises intervention. Notice that on the first one, he just says, go attack the Philistines and save Keilah. He doesn't promise that he'll intervene. But on the second inquiry, God actually promises, I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. So God expands his promise on the second inquiry. Verse 5, David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, struck them with a mighty blow, which is just Old Testament talk for he kicked their butts like it was a rout, and he took away their livestock. So not only do these people hiding in caves get to save a city, they also get fed and they take livestock. So this is part of how God's providing for his people. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. They're worried about a loss, but God uses this as a gain. Now it happened, verse 6, when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he went down with an ephod in his hand. So that, it's interesting in verse 6 that they make this point of the ephod here. But back in the last chapter, when all the priests were killed by Saul and one of them escaped, this Abiathar is the one that escaped. It's interesting that he escaped with the ephod. So it's kind of like they're all getting killed and the older priests like hand him the ephod and say, run, go. It's a great movie scene, right? So when he gets to David, he doesn't just show up to David as a priest of God. He's a priest of God with the ephod. You see that? Here it's relevant because David's going to use that priest in this chapter, so the writer puts it in here. Um, but he has an ephod in his hand. And Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah, so Saul said, God's delivered him into my hand. It's interesting how when, a, when somebody's that twisted religiously, he's actually thinking that this is God providing for him instead of the other way around. And Saul, we're going to see a lot of that in this chapter. He is messed up, uh, this chapter and the next chapter. And he's, he's perceiving that God's working with him when he's not. So Saul said, God's delivered him into my hand, for he's shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Then Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Keilah and besiege David and his men. If he's in a city, we can surround the city and we can starve him out or, or he'll have to fight. When David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, sounds like David has spies in the court. Maybe Jonathan sent a message. He, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. And then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. Huh. 
So David asks two questions. And I think this is fascinating because this is part of the Mosaic Covenant. In the Christian Covenant, we can just go right to God ourselves. It wasn't like that for the Old Testament. They had to go through the priest. And that priest was then the voice or the instrument of God to speak to his people. There was an intercessor. And, and our intercessor is Jesus, who is God, which means we pray directly to Jesus. We don't have an intercessor. It's interesting that Dave asks these two questions. And God answers them in reverse order. So he answers kind of the more relevant one first, which is, is Saul going to come down here as your servant has heard? Is this a rumor, God? Or is this true? Are they going to attack me here? And the Lord said, he will come down. Yes, Saul's coming. That's the truth. And then David said, will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord says, they will deliver you. How heartbreaking is that? You just saved the city from the Philistines and they're going to turn on you. And it's your priest telling you that. So he's going out the door and the people of Keilah are like, oh, thank you for saving us. You're so great. You're so wonderful. David, you're the true king of Israel. We think you're great. But as soon as those people are pressed, they're going to turn on him in a second. Absolute betrayal. And David has to walk around knowing that these people are ready to turn on him in a second. So the priest does this inquiry. And again, I just think this is fascinating. When they're talking about the ephod and how David asks, um, we know from the Old Testament, from the Levitical law, that the ephod had some sort of pocket in it. And inside the pocket was the urim and the thummim. And we don't know what they were. Tradition says there was like a black stone and, a, and a, like an opal and a, and a pearl, like a white stone and a black stone. Black being no and the white being yes. So when you inquired of the Lord, you had to ask the Lord yes, no questions. It couldn't be like, what time will Saul show up? It had to be, will Saul show up or not? Yes or no? And then the priest would pray, reach into the pocket, and pull out a stone. And they just acted as like this intercessor. Now here's the thing with the Urim and the Thummim. Three basic rules. Um, you had to ask a yes, no question, because that's how the stones worked. And you had to pray about it and think about it. And it had to not, neither direction had to be in contrast with God's word. So whether or not David stays in the city has nothing to do with following God's command or not. So it's a neutral. Both decisions are equally godly decisions. There's nothing wrong either way. And David has thought about it, prayed about it. Uh, and he's kind of at a loss as, do I stay or should I stay or should I go? Like the old rock song. Like, which one do I do here, Lord? And it does, it's a significant decision. It's a life-changing decision. But neither direction is either pro or against God's word. And then last but not least, the third condition is the priest had to be there as a witness. A king couldn't go pull the Urim and Thummim. Like Saul tried some of this nonsense, but kings don't get to do this. The priests would do this. So, and I think that's because then there's two witnesses. Everything's established by two or more witnesses. So the king is there or whoever's inquiring of the Lord, because you could go to any, you could go to the tabernacle as a lay person and ask the, the priest for, for a yes, no question kind of thing. So the priest is there as a witness, and the person with the inquiry is there as the witness, or you could say, well, God's the witness, and then the priest is the witness. Either way, you got two or three witnesses that you're going to do this. And when you ask, you're bound to whatever comes out of the pocket. Like, this is literally drawing straws or flipping a coin. But it's flipping a coin at the level of covenant with God. So whatever comes out of that pocket, you're kind of bound to it. Because you couldn't make the decision on your own. It's two very equal things. You know when you flip a coin and you kind of hope it comes up heads? Because in your, in your spirit, you already kind of know which one you should be doing. 
and then it comes up tails and you're like, okay, well, it's best two out of three. And you just keep flipping. You can't do that with the Urim and Thuam. What, if you've honestly come to that point where you can't make the decision, you do it before the Lord, you do it with the priest, the decision gets made. Here's what this saves God's people from. Years and months and weeks of indecision. Like at some level, move on with your life. And there are people that get crippled with indecision. And it's a, very, it's a godly and a graceful way to say, we're not going to live in indecision, we're going to live with confidence. And if neither decision is contrary to the word of God, it really doesn't matter which way you go. So let's let, give it to the Lord and let him make that decision. You know, as believers, we do a form of this, but we can do it directly before our God and say, Lord, we're just going to give this to you. And there are lots of these stories, but they're really quiet stories. They don't often make it into the word of God, and they don't, they're not often the stories we tell people about because there are moments of indecision. They're private. They're between us and God. Lord, should I take this job? Shouldn't I take this job? Should I buy this house? Should I not buy this house? There's a thousand day-to-day decisions where God expects us to use our brain, to use the word of God, and to use the Holy Spirit. But there are times where we're honestly just stuck. And then when we get to that point of being stuck, God doesn't want us to live there. Let's move on. Make a decision and go on. So David and his men, about 600, verse 13, arose and departed from Keilah and went wherever they, would, they could go. They just left. And then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, so he halted the expedition. It's amazing how quick everything resolves when you follow God's will. You can do it the hard way or you can do it God's way. So they do it God's way and they go out in the open where you'd think they'd be more vulnerable. Also notice that it just turned into 600 men in verse 13. Wait, where did the extra 200 people just come from? A couple answers to that. It might be that a bunch of the men from Keilah joined David's little growing kingdom. Like David's, God's birthing a kingdom from within Israel to be the new Israel. And that kingdom is being formed very quietly outside the normal structures of power. A lot like the church was birthed within the synagogue system. And eventually the church became the kingdom of God. And so the 600 men has grown since uh, chapter 22, verse 2. There was only 400, now there's 600. Uh, and David avoids battle. It's not always the case that God's people need to fight. In fact, sometimes God tells us to just walk away from the fight. It's not worth getting into. So he leaves. Verse 14, and David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So if this is a movie, this is the montage of the bad Saul trying to chase David and then David narrowly escaping over and over again. This is like the, mon the montage of the Roadrunner and Wiley e. Coyote. And Coyote makes his plans and plots and the Roadrunner just keeps escaping over and over and over again. The reason that delights our heart is because this is exactly the scene we have. Um, and the indication here, the way the Hebrews put together, he stayed in strongholds, plural. This is happening over and over and over again. In fact, this is a period of, of, of scholars think about five years of David just narrowly escaping Saul over and over and over again, inquiring of the Lord, making the right decision over and over and over again. And David in this five years, you could say this is a rough five years, but David's actually learning endurance. His men, his men are going from cutthroats and vagabonds to being mighty men because they're learning day after day, week after week, that their stronghold is in the Lord God Almighty. It's not in where they're staying. They're learning week after week after week that every decision we make like this seems to go right. 
So we're going to just trust David versus what we think is going to be. We thought we were trapped, but again, David got us out. And we just, they started to learn this trust in the Lord as a way of life. And five years, I, I want to say that that should be something, if that's the case in this verse 14 is a montage scene of just all of these things, we should be encouraged by that. God's view of our life does not happen in weeks and days. It happens in years and decades. Like the way he looks at our life is, is a long lifetime journey. And as humans, we often think of it in the day-to-day kind of thing. And God just doesn't operate that way. Like one verse is just years of time in David's life. But in that time, he's training to be a king. And he's training the right way. So he's learning endurance. Then verse 15. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. So in verse 15, the the writer's narrowing us down to a particular instance, which is an example of what happened over five years. So here's just one great example of what's going on. And then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God and said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be a king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows this. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his house. This is the last time David and Jonathan are going to hang out. And we've seen them from all the way back in chapter 15. They're brothers in Christ. They're on this journey together. And frankly, in the church, aren't we blessed? We got way more than just one of these friends, just in this room. We got people where we're just living life together. And we're going to go through life as long as we're hanging out. You know, as long as people are showing up every week, we're family. And I just, what a blessing this is. Solomon said, This kind of friend is like one in a thousand. Like these people are so rare and so precious. And as David's running, 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 escaping, 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 that had to be weary. That had to make David tired. He had to be getting worn out. So I want to focus a little bit on verses 16 through 18 in that what Jonathan says to David, I think is Holy Spirit inspired of what a good friend says to another friend. This is what friendship looks like. These are the things that come out of the mouth of a godly friend. One, he says, do not fear, repeating the words of God, like read the book of Joshua. He just repeats God's word to his friend. How good a friend that when we, when we feel down and we're discouraged, because David had to be a little discouraged. Read the Psalms. This was a, a hard time in David's life. It wasn't easy. He felt like, man, this is just tough. But when Jonathan shows up, he says, do not fear. He repeats God's words and reminds David of God's promise. You will be king. God has a plan for your life. I know it. And when that happens, I'm right there by your side. What a promise. Don't worry, David. It's all good. Your enemies that you think are going to catch you, they're not going to catch you. You got God on your side and you got me on your side, which makes me think Jonathan was maybe the inside person, like send a news to David to help him escape. Even Saul knows this. This is what friends do. This is so great. John is, Jonathan is preserving David's heart in the toughest times of David's life. Good friends do that. Good friends are not discouragers. They're not accusers. They're not people that critique and pick on you to make you better. Good friends are ones that encourage, build, and, and edify in the faith at the toughest times in your life. They're not the I told you so people. They're the, I'm here with you no matter what, people. It's just awesome. 
Even Saul knows this. I love that he says that. Jonathan's talking about his own dad. You're going to be king because God's anointed you, God's promised it, God's got a plan for your life. Even your enemies know that God's doing something in your life. It's why they hate you so much. It's why they're coming after you so hard. They know that there's something special going on, that the Spirit's moving. And then they made a covenant before the Lord. What you're saying, but they already made a covenant back in chapter 15. They made another one back in chapter 20, right? Is that the right chapter, 20? So they've already made two covenants. Why do they need a third covenant? One, three is complete. Another thing is, there's nothing in the Bible that says renewing your covenants is a bad thing. It's a really good thing to do. And it's, it's, I think, sometimes why people get baptized more than once. Yeah, I made a covenant to the Lord when I was 15. I'm ready to renew that covenant. It's time to, from today forward, I'm going to go forward with a life in Christ that's different than what I had before. So renewing your covenants with each other. There's people that in their marriage that renew their vows to each other because they feel like their marriage has matured and they're not the same people they were when they were in their 20s. So they want to do a thing where they renew their vows and have a big celebration. There's nothing wrong with doing that. There's no command to do it, but there's nothing wrong with renewing your vows. And David's in a tough place, and those vows are things that sustain him. So Jonathan, the king's son, makes a covenant that actually puts him out of the kingship. How rare is this guy? Jonathan's one of the only Old Testament characters that there's no record of his sin. Like, and we need to pay attention to that too. When the Old Testament tells about a character, usually we get to see their downside. There's no downside to Jonathan. He is an absolute gift from God, biblically speaking. And we don't see he's untarnished by any kind of recorded sin. Also, they do it before the Lord. And I think that's a, a final element to that conversation. They do this covenant before the Lord. Good friends are pursuing God before they're pursuing you. The best friends you can have, you're at best second place in their life. And when they do this covenant, they do it before the Lord, and that's what makes them good friends. I always tell that to people when they're asking about Bible study. Come on over to Bible study. And they're like, oh, are there people there I would get along with? And it's like, who cares? You're here to seek the Lord by studying the Word. It doesn't matter if we're nice people or not. We happen to be fairly nice people. But you're not here for the fellowship. You should be here because you desperately want to get the next chapter of the Bible. And the benefit of getting the next chapter of the Bible is you happen to be hanging out in a room full of people that also want to do things before the Lord that we put God first in our lives. And in that, you can, yes, find great fellowship. But the heart of this is they're doing it before the Lord. And that covenant gets made before the Lord. Good friends want to serve the Lord alongside you and with you. But they're pursuing God before they pursue anything else. Then we get the Ziphites, the opposite of Jonathan. Jonathan's a loyal friend in the other camp. The Ziphites are absolute scoundrels. Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds in the woods? In the hill of Hakalah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? They're telling him where David is. Now therefore, O king, come down according to all that you desire of your soul to come down. And our, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hands. So, <coughs> to be fair, in the Hebrew the word the is not there. So we're not talking about the whole family of Ziph, right? It is, then Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah. And I think that changes the sentence entirely. Like if you meet a Ziphite in heaven, don't immediately think they're one of the weasels. You know, because, so to be fair to the Ziphites, it's not all the Ziphites. 
it's a couple of Ziphites that ruin it for everybody. Which made me think, isn't that always the case? It only takes a few people that are just nasty to ruin the reputation of a whole group of people. So it's a few Ziphites that come up. But the Ziphites were Judeans. So this is David's family. This is David's tribe. The betrayal comes from within his own tribe. The friendship comes from outside the tribe. South of Jeshimon. Over time, because of the description of this in verse 19, we can see that over that five-year period, David's getting pushed further and further away from the good territory of Israel. As he's running from Saul, he's running further and further into the wilderness and away from kind of good food sources and water sources. Verse 21. And Saul said, Blessed are you of the Lord, for you have compassion on me. Again, we see from Saul again, using this language of God, while at the same time defying God. And, and we just need to be wary of that, Christians. Not everyone who calls himself a Christian is really following God's will. Like, we have to know that, right? And that's not me being weird, some weird conspiracy expert. I'm just reading the word, and clearly Saul is not in God's will here. But he keeps using the language like he is. And that means that we, like David, have to be somewhat wise. Um, Blessed are you of the Lord. Saul's actually blessing people that are being treacherous little weasels. Like that's, like, that's how twisted Saul is right now. He's giving a blessing to somebody who's betraying God's anointed. So verse 22. Um, verse 22 through 23, take note of, like, in the, it's not that Saul says, oh, great, show me where it is and I'll go there. He does not speak like a king. He speaks with, like, overly emphatic Hebrew language. Like, he's excited about this situation. So please go out and find out for sure and see the place where his hideout is and who has seen him there, for I'm told he is very crafty. Like, he's got almost this, like, manic, oh, let, let's do this. Like, we're now allies. See, therefore, and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with certainty, and I will go with you. And it shall be, if he is in the land, that I will search for him throughout all the clans of Judah. See kind of the exaggerated language? Like he's not balanced or in tone here. Uh, so Saul has total strangers walk up, and now he's just a, a perfect ally with them. And this is not wise for a king to act like this. The meantime, <laughs> David's writing songs. So as his enemies are plotting and planning against him, if you flip to Psalm 54, and I'm going to read this psalm, let, we got to get inside David's head. At the same time that he's being betrayed, he's writing music and praise for the king. And he knows he's being betrayed, but he doesn't care. He's just going to serve the Lord. So Psalm 54 is an amazing psalm. And, we, and we've seen this, like, right? The last week we had three chapters and every story it was like, and here he wrote this psalm and here he wrote that psalm and here he wrote. Like, as you go through the stories of David, almost every narrative has a psalm that goes with it. So we get to see inside his heart while we learn that it's not just a historical narrative, it's a historical narrative that has a soundtrack. So we get to hear the emotion behind the story. So I want to read Psalm 54. While David's going through this, this is Psalm 54. To the chief musician with stringed instruments, a contemplation of David, when the Ziphites went and said to Saul, is David not hiding with us? So this is how David reacted to getting betrayed by his own tribe people. Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God, and give ear 
to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen up against me, and oppressors have sought after my life, and they've not set God before them. Selah. The word Selah in the Psalms means breathe, relax. Soak it in. He's been betrayed. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil, cut them off in, their, in your truth, and I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it's good. And he has delivered me out of all trouble, and my eye has seen its desires upon my enemies. I've been with you, Lord, for five years. You've gotten me out of everything. Get me out of this. Like, it's your life, Lord, and, and, and it's yours no matter what. The heart of David here, we need to learn from this. David, he admits his troubles. He's not unrealistic. He's not the unicorns and rainbow. Everything's happy-go-lucky when it's not. He acknowledges the reality of the situation, reasonably processes, asks for help, gives God his troubles, and then he declares his trust and confidence in God, and then he lets go of it. And he doesn't react with bitterness. There's no hatred here. He's like, Lord, these are your enemies. You deal with them. And I'm going to keep writing my next song. Like, I just love this guy's heart. And we live in such a contentious age right now with people going after each other all the time, families being divided over stuff. And the Lord, and David's just like, I'm going to focus on the Lord. That's what I choose to do instead of getting mad or bitter. Verse 24, so they arose and went to Ziph before Saul, but David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the plain of the south of Jeshimon. And when Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, therefore he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. So we got this chase scene. And then David went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. He's been caught. They're encircled. It's just a matter of time. He's been surrounded. Saul's men, there's more of them, and they've kind of got him. So they got this kind of rise in between, and David's men are like watching Saul's men come around both sides of it, and there's no, not much getting away in this situation. They're about to get surrounded. So basically, it's just a matter of time. And then, I love this, the end of the chapter. But a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. What? Therefore Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines, so they called that place the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and dwelt in the strongholds of Engedi. Can you see why I read the psalm? Everything looks like it's over, and David's just like, Lord, it's all yours. And then the... They include this story in the book because this was one of the closest calls they had. And I imagine David's spies are watching Saul's men and they're like, oh shoot, it's all over. We don't have anywhere to run. We're about to get trapped. And then all of a sudden the men like go back and retreat and leave. And they, they find out from their spies later, it's well, some, a, a messenger came, verse 27. The word messenger there is the same Hebrew word, malak. We've seen this a score of times whenever an angel shows up in the Old Testament the word Malik gets used. So I don't know why we don't have that more of his name for our kids, like Malik, like it's angel is the, the Hebrew. But it's somebody who shows up in human form. Typically Malik is somebody from heaven that shows up and that gets used here in a very passing kind of way. It doesn't say it's an ener it, that this person's from heaven or whatever, but the way the context is used, it's pretty clear God intervened 
to have this Philistine attack at just the right moment to save them at just the right time when they were likely minutes away from being caught. But David's faith is in God and God protects. Doesn't matter if it looks like you're surrounded. Where God guides, God provides. And he takes care of it. You have to think there's tons of people in David's army that doubt David, but they don't have anywhere else to go. Like, man, this guy, we get in so many close calls. He just keeps trusting the Lord. I don't know, but where else are we going to run to? Where else can we go? No weapon that's formed against you shall prosper. Every tongue that rises against you in judgment shall be, shall, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is of me, says the Lord. Isaiah 54, 17. Great verse to memorize. You know what our heritage is as servants of the Lord? We can trust that he'll protect us. We can put our faith in him. Life's going to happen. Like this is all for us. This is all kind of a, a fatal endeavor. Like we all end up dead, right? None of us get out of this life alive. But the fact that along the way, the Lord's our protector and our guardian, what an amazing thought. And that's our heritage. And this is a story about how that works. Like if this was Bible study and David was here and I'd say, does anybody have any stories from the week? He'd be like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe what happened. We're calling it the Rock of Escape. We were surrounded by Saul, and here's what happened. And they, he would share that story at Bible study on Sunday night. Like, we almost got caught. And everybody at Bible study is like, yeah, we were all there, you know, because they're all traveling together. But yes, this is history, but don't miss the fact that this is also a spiritual principle. And this is here for our instruction and our learning. God is our rock of escape. God gets us out of everything. Trust in him and watch it happen. So 1 Samuel chapter 24 starts with, now it happened. This is the same narrative. Ignore the chapter break. Now it happened when David had returned from following the Philistines. Well, that was a ridiculous goose chase. Why did that happen? Then it was told to him, take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. So now he's moved to En Gedi. He picked a little better area to hang out. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. Uh, goats are great rock climbers, so... If you've been to En Gedi, it's beautiful, but what it's known for is those are the headwaters of the Jordan River. So there's springs everywhere with this natural spring water, and it's the Romans made it a vacation resort for the upper-ups. These pools are still like perfectly clear water. You can jump in and swim in them. Uh, en Gedi's beautiful. It also has tons of caves because the spring makes caves. So there are caves that you can fit thousands of people inside of, and those caves even have little back caves behind them. So for Spelunkers and Getty and the hills around there is beautiful. Even today, it's like a vacation resort to go to. Tons of water, tons of places to eat, and apparently lots of goats. So there's, it's where you'd want to bring 600 people if you had to feed them and water them. So it's another historical account, but remember the broader view. Remember the Psalms that David's singing as he does this. It'd be nice if God's enemies just quit, but they don't. Right? It would be nice if the enemies just got beat and then they stopped. But they don't. And they haven't for 6,000 years. So I think it's wonderful that as the people of God were like, man, I wish we didn't have to struggle with this or we didn't have to fight this political battle or we didn't have to argue with our family members about things like this. But the reality is the enemies of God are persistent. And so is Saul with his army. This time he brings 3,000 chosen men. That means he's not bringing the whole army. He's bringing the ninjas. Like these are the elite Spartan warriors. These are the fighting experts. 
He's got 3,000. David's got 600, you know, sheep herders and farmers and debtors. He does not have a military force. So these are trained and expert soldiers against, you know, 600 kind of who will be eventually mighty men. But at this point, they have wives, they have kids. This is a family unit moving around. And he goes to En Gedi where he can hide that many people. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. And David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. So this is one of those, it says sheepfold, it's because if it was hailing or storming, you could bring an entire flock of sheep, thousands of sheep, inside the cave, and then they would put a little thing there where you could, it was a sheepfold. The other thing with a sheepfold is you could leave your sheep there as a shepherd, and then go do your business. Like you could take a break or take a nap, and you didn't have to worry about your sheep because there were sheepfolds. So the sheepfolds were there for any shepherd to use. Odds are when David was a shepherd, he used these sheepfolds. So he would have taken his flock up here to graze, and he knew this territory from when he was a young man. Um, and these caves can easily hold a 1,000 people, no problem whatsoever. Um, it says that Saul went to attend to his needs. <laughs> That's Old Testament for either he went to take a nap and just get away from the army and take a rest, or he went in to go use the restroom. And because these were streams, like spring caves, there's usually a stream running through them where he could go relieve himself. And if you're king, you don't do that in front of your people, right? It's a vulnerable position to be in. So he gets, like, his lieutenants watch the army. He goes up into the cave so he can do his business in private, right? Maybe he ate some bad tacos or something like that. But he goes in alone, likely to relieve himself. Um, and I just like this because the Bible's about real people. Like, honestly, I don't see this in, in Babylonian texts. I don't see it in ancient Chinese texts. Like, nobody talks about their king going to the bathroom. This is because the Bible's written as a historical narrative. It's not a legendary tale, right? And I just think those details add a lot of, like, grit to me that I'm reading about real people when I read these. So David's in the same cave, him and 600 people and all of their families, and they're watching the light at the end of the cave and as the light shines, they see a guy come in who has kingly robes on, probably just the silhouette because your eyes got to adjust. But he walks in, he settles in, he squats, drops his pants, and there he is doing his thing. And the men, of course, well, we'll just keep reading. Then the men of David say to him, this is the day which the Lord has said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as seems good to you. Apparently, God had spoken to David and he shared it with his men and said, I'm pretty confident the Lord's going to deliver Saul. But notice it doesn't say that you might kill him. It says you may do to him whatever seems good to you. God told him something that was going to be a test. And the men are reading that as, there's King Saul and he's pooping and you could just take him out right now and this could all be over. Think of that. Think of the opportunity, right? It could just be ended very ingloriously, very ugly-like, very brutally. And David arose and he secretly snuck up like the river that's running through the caves are loud because they're rushing water. You know, it's dark in the cave. Saul doesn't know the cave like David does. Like, how could he possibly sneak up on a guy while he's pooping? Well, I don't know about you, but sometimes pooping makes a lot of noise. David's pretty quiet. He's able to sneak up. He doesn't have a lot of heavy armor on. He's able to go up. He gets close enough. The other argument, by the way, is that he's sleeping. And part of attending to his needs is that he's asleep. I just like the image of him doing his business better. Um, but either way, we can disagree on that, and we're still both Christians. 
right? So he's in there doing his thing. David sneaks up and secretly cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. That's significant. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words, and he did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. This is awesome. David has such a respect for the king. It's not Saul. Saul's his enemy. But the king is God's anointed, and God puts Saul there even though he's a bad king. Even though Saul's actually trying to attack him, David still honors that position and that person. This is a great challenge for Christians. Can we honor our political leaders even when they're trying to close down churches? And David's regard for him is so high that his men are like immediately, do it, kill him, charge. This is it. This is over. Our hiding in caves can be done. And you and Jonathan can run the kingdom together. And he secretly cuts off a corner, showing a lot of restraint at the beginning. But even that little bit of disrespect bothers David. It says it troubled him in his heart. Something was wrong with that decision. And first of all, he didn't consult the Lord what to do. And now he's feeling like, oh, that was the wrong thing to do because he just dishonored somebody that God had put in that spot. Man, the level of respect here. David shows that regard even while Saul disregards and disrespects what God does at every turn. But it troubles him. His conscience is, is messed up. And it doesn't matter how small the sin was, it's that it was a sin and that bothers David. David's an otherwise pretty good guy at this point. He hasn't made any big mistakes. But it doesn't matter. Part of what makes him a good guy is it doesn't matter how small the sin is. If it's the wrong thing to do, it's the wrong thing to do. He, calls, he argues to his men that this is because he's anointed of the Lord. It's not about Saul, it's about God's will. And if God's going to take Saul off the throne, God can do it through his own means. I'm not going to be the instrument of that. This is really interesting. So he says to his men, showing leadership, David's learning to be a king right now. Part of being a king is showing his mighty men how to not be cutthroats, how to be honorable. This is the first time in human history that we see this kind of training happening. It's not about just the strong beating up the weak. It's about restraint and about knowing when to use strength and when to use opportunity. It's interesting. I mean, he's got his men saying, David, you should, do, you should be doing so much more than what you're doing right now. And David's response is, I'm going to do what God called me to do. And I got to admit, I resonate with that because people get excited and they're like, oh, we should be doing this and that and this and this. It's like, we should be doing exactly what God calls us to do. And if God wants to make this and that and this and this happen, then God can do that because we have that big of a God. So David gives this repudiation to his men by repudiating himself. He's the first person he's upset with. And he reminds them that this is about the anointed of the Lord. Titus 3.1, put in mind to be subject to the principalities and powers to obey the magistrates and be do, to be ready to do every good work. We're commanded. Like, unless they're saying to do something that's against God's law, we should be respecting our governmental authorities. David is the first place in history where that takes precedent over power and brute strength. Like, respect and obey these authorities. David's actions then, like, David didn't have Paul's epistles to teach him that. Paul's epistles are written because David modeled it. 
And, and, and I think it's important to understand that. Like a lot of the things we get in the New Testament are born out of the actions of somebody being led by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So as David does this, he's instructing Paul, which instructs the church, which instructs us how we should be behaving. I just love that. David continues to put his trust in God. God puts Saul there, but David's supposed to do what's right in his heart. He does something, but it doesn't sit right in his heart. So he's going to fix it. <clears throat> There's no shortcuts for David. He's going to obey even when it seems counterintuitive. David hasn't allowed bitterness to grow in his heart. You would think over that amount of time he'd be pretty bitter towards Saul. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? And the fact that he's not bitter says so much about David's heart and how he's conditioned himself to trust in the Lord. No bitterness, no anger. So he restrains himself. He restrains his servants in doing so with these words. Here's another like time perspective. He's trained. One of these men is likely Uriah the Hittite, the guy who's married to Bathsheba, who David betrays later on. But as he's training these mighty men, this core of people that are going to build a new kingdom, one of those men that's learning in this situation is Uriah, who says, I'm going to honor my king before I honor myself and, and, and serve my own needs. Like, this is where Uriah learned that from. And Uriah said to David, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 11, Uriah said to David, The ark, Israel, Judah, they abide in tents, and my lord Joab... The servants of my Lord, they're encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my own house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Oh, put that in context to this. David, I serve you. And the loyalty Uriah has putting the needs of his king before himself, this is where he learned that from. I think that's so powerful. And, and, and he says, as you livest, he's talking to David. David, as long as you're alive, I'm living the way you taught me to live. Imagine hearing that coming back out of somebody that you've been training for years to be a man of honor instead of a man of selfishness. Yeah, that had to be convicting for David. David taught his men nobility before nobility ever existed. He taught him honor before honor was invented. There's no code of chivalry. He teaches them restraint even though they have the advantage. In a time when that kind of law was unheard of. Where did it come from? David's heart before the Lord wasn't settled. Like, I just love this. It was Holy Spirit inspired. Something didn't sit right. So his heart knew right and wrong from that moment. He shows them courage like when he faced Goliath. But this situation, way cooler than Goliath. This situation is absolute boldness in the name of Christ. There's no way for David to know what to do other than the Holy Spirit talking to him. It reminded me when Jesus looks at Peter and says, who do you say that I am? And he says, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. And, and Jesus answers him and says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. You got that straight from God. Remember that feeling of getting that conscience in your heart and remember it and act on it. God seems to be showing David a totally new way to deal with his problems. Listen to this, verse 8. David also arose afterwards and went out of the cave and called out to Saul saying, My Lord, the king. And when he looked at him, David stopped him with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? 
Look this day, for your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, back where you were pooping. I had you. And someone urged me to kill you. My men wanted you dead. But my eye spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. What do you do when your enemy slaps you? You turn the other cheek. It's the same principle. How, how do you deal with issues that seem overwhelming and harsh? First of all, stop puffing yourself up with pride and try humility. David comes out and says, my Lord, total humility. Submission to this person. Not because Saul's good or because of Saul's actions. It's because of his position. It's because God's put him in authority. David stooped with his face to the earth. He physically shows, I'm not here to be better than you. I'm not, I'm not here to try to win an argument with you, Saul. I'm not here to try to kill you. I'm here to serve you. Why do you listen to the words of men? This is really wise because in saying this, David's giving Saul a way out. Saul, it's not you being evil. You're getting bad counsel. And David blames the counsel, not the man, which gives Saul a, like a, a psychological out where he can save some face. He undercuts Doeg, Doeg the Edomite that killed all the priests and other slanderers. We know from Psalm 7 that he calls them liars. Like David's not nice to these people counseling Saul. He writes about it. The Lord delivered you. David doesn't take credit for his own goodness. He gives credit to God. God did this. My eye spared you. I saw you, Saul, and I, and I didn't see somebody that I wanted to kill. I had mercy. That's what's actually in my heart, and it's been proven with action. I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord. Why? Because he's God's anointed. I'm not going to touch you because God put you there. This is unique to this situation and these people. Don't build that out into a principle for the whole word of God, because sometimes God says to fight your enemies. But in this particular situation, the right result between two human beings, not two armies, Saul and David, the right situation here is to try to make peace. David does not treat the Philistines that attacked Kelia that way, right? We just read that. David went after those people. When he's dealing with another person that's in the kingdom of God, there's a right relations that needs to happen, a shalom that we build when we're on the same team. This, this, so this quote, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord for his Lord's, this gets misused for 2,000 years of Christian history. This gets misused all the time. Like medieval, medieval kings used this as a way to get dominance over their, their kingdoms, right? You never challenge the king. Unless the king's asking you to do something ungodly. So David isn't serving under Saul, but he's not willing to kill Saul either because that defiles him. So this is the same as the kingdom age. Um, we should note historically what David's doing here is part of why when we look at Revelation in the Kingdom Age and the prophets, David gets brought up a lot. He's actually going to be a prince in the Kingdom Age. Not a king. Jesus will be king. But David will serve as one of Jesus' princes. And this is said over and over and over. So I'm going to list off a bunch of these. Get your pens ready. Like this is a great Bible study. Jeremiah 30 verse 9. Hosea chapter 3 verse 5. Um, Exodus 34.23, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 34.23, and Ezekiel 37.24, all of those prophets call David a prince in the kingdom age. God will use him as authority 
in the end of days or in the end kingdom of God. So this is crazy because what David's doing in his flesh life is actually going to have impact on the role he has in the kingdom of heaven. It's no different for you or me. God's called us to do things in this life that set us up for the next life. All of this is a test. How are we going to behave now and are we going to listen to God now even when it's tough? Because that's what God's looking at as we live our lives. It's a measured thing that God's doing. It's important to understand that as David does these things, it's part of what qualifies him to be a prince in the kingdom age. It's his heart. It's his heart being right with God, consulting with God, feeling horrible when he does the wrong thing. He's not perfect. He just cut off a king's robe. Like he defiled a king's robe. Robes are a big thing in the ancient world. We picked that up with Joseph and his technicolor dream coat, right? Like it's a big deal. And you defile a king's robe, you're defiling the king himself. Romans 12, 21. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. David shows Paul what that means. Keep in mind that we're learning both the history, but we're also learning the future kingdom right now. Like it's, it's both things. There's an eternal covenant that David's going to make with God, 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is why David's going to be in the kingdom age. God's going to make an eternal covenant with David. He sets up the throne of David as the one that Jesus will take at some point. This is incredible. Matthew 5.44, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Do sometimes you love people that haven't been loving? Yes. Absolutely. David's the first to show what that looks like. I just, this is an incredible story. God's doing a work in your life too, and those people that you're tempted to be bitter with, how do you flip that into love? Quite frankly, I don't know how we do that in the flesh, but I can pray to the Lord God Almighty and say, Lord, please change my heart. Give me a heart of love towards these people that have done nothing loving to me. Genuine, humble forgiveness sets you up for the kingdom of heaven, what God wants us to be. Verse 11, moreover, my father, see. David switches the title. He says he's his Lord, right? Then he says he's his king, civic leader. In verse 11, he says, moreover, my father. And Saul is David's father-in-law. But now he's gone to a personal relationship, not just a civic relationship. Yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, no one see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand. And I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. Man, how do you beat evil like this? This is how you beat evil. When he holds up the corner of his robe, I want to remind you that I don't think David even understood how powerful an image that was for Saul. Because if you remember back in chapter 15, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return to you for you've rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Saul has been told he's not the king anymore. And Samuel turned to walk away, and Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. <sighs> Saul's got that spinning in his head, and it's been driving him crazy because deep down he knows that's David. David's the guy that was promised, and now David holds up a corner of a robe? you got to be kidding like, that had to hit Saul like a ton of bricks. Boom. You ripped off the robe from Samuel, and you just got your robe ripped off. What's graceful and merciful about God is that 
He's leaving Saul in the office for almost 20 years. Saul has every chance to repent, and he doesn't do it. So without even knowing it, David shows his purity, but reminds Saul of the promises of God by holding up the corner of a robe. Yet you hunt my life to take it. You're the evil one, and I'm showing you that I'm not trying to do evil to you. And, and, and Saul's just reminded that there's somebody better than you that's going to show up, and they're where I'm going to put the kingdom. Let the Lord judge between you and me. Let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. I'm never going to touch you, Saul. I'm never going to hurt you. But the Proverbs, the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Who do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Therefore, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case. Deliver me out of your hand. Okay, first of all, when, when David walked out of the cave, he's given himself up. Saul could kill him right then and there. So God put Saul in a position where he could get killed, and now David voluntarily puts himself in a position where he could get killed. It doesn't say anything about his soldiers walking out, like the rest of the men are back in the cave still hiding. But David puts himself in a totally vulnerable position that Saul was just in. So Saul has a chance to end it right now. You're scared of David taking over the kingdom. You're scared your son's not going to be on the throne. You could end it right now and kill David. And you had to think Saul's doing that. But man, holding up the piece of that robe, oh, I think it would just rip your soul apart. Woe to the world because of offenses, for it must and needs be that offenses will come. But woe to the man by whom the offense comes, Matthew 18, verse 7. Don't be the one that does the evil. And that's the, what, what Matthew's putting in front of Saul. I'm never going to be the one that hurts you. But Saul has every opportunity to hurt David back. Humility, kindness, vulnerability, all do the work of God's Holy Spirit. And Saul's got a really hard heart. We've seen that over the last few chapters. This is going to shatter that hard heart. It's going to melt it. I love this. Do you not yet understand, Jesus says in Matthew 15, 17, don't you yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the belly and it's cast out into the draught, like Saul in the cave? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart and they defile the man. What comes out of the mouth is what's coming from our heart. So when David says, what am I to you, a dead dog, a flea? It's like he's saying to Saul, I'm beneath you, Saul. Like, why would a king come out to, to, to get after a dead dog? Like, dead dogs aren't just dogs. They're dead dogs. They're totally helpless. I'm never going to hurt you because I don't have teeth. I'm not going to kill you because I'm not after. I'm dead, like, to you. Like, and not only does it say, like, I'm a flea. It's, in the Hebrew, it's like, I'm a, it's a singular word. I'm a little flea. I'm a singular flea. Who am I to you, Saul? I'm a flea. I'm nothing. I'm powerless. I'm wretched. Both a dead dog and a flea would be signs of uncleanness under Levitical law. Like it's not, you defile yourself, Saul, by even coming after me. I'm so not worth the attention of a king. I'm just some guy living in caves. Why are you coming after me? You touch me, you kill me, you just defile yourself. So it was. Verse 16, when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, that Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? Well, that's an interesting thing. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. 
just broke his heart. They had years where David was the guy playing the harp for him, the guy that helped calm him down. And David once again comes out with words of wisdom that just calms Saul down. And he remembers, oh yeah, I used to like this guy. So his heart melts. Saul once knew God, like he was once somebody that sang with God. And he still has a heart for God at some level. He's still using God's language, even though he's twisted in how he does it. Like there's something even in our worst enemies that does want to be in the presence of an almighty God. I think we forget that as Christians sometimes. We just demonize the people that are against God. But why are they so actively against God? What does it matter to them if we believe in in God Almighty? Like, leave us alone and let us live in our caves, right? But there's something in them that it bothers them. So you get this rock in the desert, this rock of escape, and now you got the rocks of En Gedi that have living water flowing out of them. And that living water, you got this moment of near death, but out of that death comes life. The imagery here is powerful. Therefore, if your enemy's hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Romans 12, verse 20. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. The worst thing you can do to your enemy is be nice to them. Because in their head, they've worked you up as the worst, most horrible person in the world. They've already dehumanized you. So when you just show them kindness, you just flip the whole game on them. But don't do it for manipulative reasons. Don't do it because you like want to burn their head. Do it because it's the right thing to do, right? So Saul appears genuinely moved. He, we know he's moved because he doesn't kill David, right? Then verse 17, then he says to David, you are more righteous than I, which made me read that other passage that Samuel said to him. I think Saul remembered that passage because look at the language he uses. You are better than me. I can see that now. For you have rewarded me with good where I've rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have, d- d- how you have dealt with me. For when the Lord delivered me into, you hand, into your hand, you didn't kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Because you didn't kill me, David, I'm not going to kill you. That's not exactly repentance. But hey, David's not going to get killed today. You know, and he, he once again escapes. Saul sees the moral contrast. And and it's interesting because Saul came out to kill David, but he finds that at the end of the day, he can't actually do that evil. It's like when Balaam, when uh, they tried to get Balaam to curse the Israelites and he would go in and all he could do is come out with blessings. Like he just couldn't bring himself to curse Israel because at the end of the day, when God's got a plan, he's going to defend his people. So it's interesting every time that believers get attacked by the world, that the church seems to grow. Like you can't really beat the church because you can kill us, but the work continues. And the greatest forms of love are shown when the greatest forms of hate come against it. The real power of love isn't when we hang out, have feasts, do escape rooms, and study the Bible together as this little community. The real force of love is when things get tough and then we see how we have each other's backs. That's where real love gets demonstrated. So real love gets demonstrated not as David's running from the enemy, but when David has the opportunity to kill the enemy and he chooses not to. That's when real love gets shown. So the real enemy isn't David, it's Saul himself. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness 
and against heavenly places. Our real enemy is not Saul. Our real enemy is that voice in Saul's head that's getting him to be evil. And we got to understand who the real enemy is. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king. Just like Jonathan said, even my dad knows this, Saul, now it's coming out of Saul's mouth. I know you're going to be king, David, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. In other words, Saul knows that he hasn't really established the kingdom. His job was to establish a new nation, and Saul recognizes he never really did that. I love that Saul acknowledges he's going to be king. Verse 21, Therefore swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. Well, David never destroyed Saul's name because it's in the Bible. We get to read about his kingship. So David keeps his promise. We know that because he's here. Most ancient cultures, when one king violently takes over another king, you eradicate all record of that king. Egyptian pharaohs, Babylonians, Assyrians, Hittites. It's why we have so little historical records. Is because this was actually pretty common in the ancient world. It's what Saul's scared of. You're going to take over as king. I can see that now. God's with you. I'm scared you're going to wipe me off the history books and my whole family. So he basically asked for the same thing Jonathan did a couple chapters ago. Don't wipe out my family when you become king. That's really the fear that Saul has. Therefore, swear to me now. I, he asks David for a vow. You're saying you won't kill me, but when you become king, can you not kill my son, not kill my family, like my grandkids? Can you be, have some mercy? which would be totally uncommon in the ancient world. This is completely unique to Israel. In other ancient societies, the new king just wiped out their competitors. Frankly, it's not just ancient societies. It's like medieval Europe, too. Like, you wipe out anybody that could challenge your throne. It's just standard practice in ungodly nations. In the nation of Israel, we get something a little different. It's interesting that when Jesus takes the throne, he takes the throne of David. And that comes to that establishment point. I don't want to move on without making that point. It's because David establishes this as a real kingdom and sets up governance structures. Saul's just running around like a tyrant, but he doesn't establish the nation of Israel. It's why Jesus doesn't take the throne of Saul. He takes the throne of David. And Saul's recognizing this right now. He really didn't do what God called him to do in life. But he wants a little bit of mercy on the other end. Verse 22, So David swore to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. <laughs> I know it's just the last verse of the chapter, but like, I think this is a great verse. When we look at friendships like Jonathan and David, we see something truly unique in their friendship. And we see something beautiful in their friendship. When we look at the Ziphites, we, we're seeing like betrayal and nastiness. When we look at Saul, we're seeing an actual enemy coming at David. But when David reconciles or forgives Saul, and Saul says, I forgive you back, we also see wisdom, right? Words don't mean much. And David's had spears thrown at him by this guy. I think it's, okay, I find humor in weird things, but they're all, wreck. everything's all lovey-dovey now, and they're all good. And Saul goes home, and David does not go home with him. Like, it's good, I'm not going to kill you, we're all good. I'm going to go hang out in my strongholds in the wilderness because I still don't trust you. It's one thing to forgive. It's another thing to rebuild trust. And Christians, we got to let ourselves off the hook on some of this sometimes. It is okay to be weary and wise with people that have betrayed or people that have attempted bad things in the past. Right? 
when we deal with, there are liars in the world. That's the reality. And the Bible's really practical about that. It's never a bad thing to swear goodness to somebody. So David makes a vow and says, sure, I'll be good to you. That's a holy thing to swear, right? And, and we have a lot of, like, when we did Leviticus, there's a lot about making a vow that's, that's pretty significant. But there's never a problem when you vow to do good, right? Just keep your vow. And at the same time, like, David's forgiveness doesn't mean that they're also reconciled. Reconciling is going to take some time. It's going to take a couple years of Saul not sending armies out to kill David, right? That might be what reconciles over time. Trust gets built through action, but for forgiveness can easily happen with words and the heart. And there is a difference between the two. I can forgive somebody, but also be wary because I know their character. And Saul's character flips back and forth between violence and love. So we know that he's not a stable guy. David knows that, and he acts wisely once again. I accept your mercy. You've accepted my mercy. We're forgiven. We're good. But I'm going to go back my way and you go your way. And I just think that's great. Saul's an emotional character. So he gives these crocodile tears. And all the words and crocodile tears and emotions are not a replacement for the fact that he threw spears at David. He's tried to kill him. So it's almost worse. We're going to continue to see Saul do bad things. It's almost worse for Saul to have this moment of repentance and then harden his heart again than it would be if he just never had this moment. Don't you think? Like when our conscience is pricked and the Holy Spirit moves us and then we reject that, that's almost worse than if we never had the Holy Spirit move in our hearts. So I think that like in context of this whole thing, David won a great victory with Goliath this is a way greater victory with a way tougher enemy. Just a way bigger deal. And in both situations, he went out by himself. And in both situations, he put himself in harm's way. In both situations, he put himself between the army and the enemy. And we see this great example of a leader who once again has put himself in a position where he could be killed on behalf of his men and his people. In both situations, we saw him go out with weapons, with Goliath, he went out with a sling. With Saul, he went out with a piece of cloth. Like, think of what he's going out with. That's his weapon. And we see that he's grown. With Goliath, he got done, and women are singing songs about him. Right, you know, He's had a moment. With Saul, he wins this battle of honor and integrity, and there's 600 guys back in the cave that just saw what a real man looks like. And that changes every one of their hearts. With Goliath, he killed somebody. With Saul, he just woke everybody up to something different in this world that we can be. We can be more than what the world tells us to be. We can be greater than what the world says, what our own flesh says we should do. And in doing this, I think we have one of the most hinge moments in human history. We got a moment where a great man chose mercy and humility over power and strength. Goliath, he's just bold and brave. With Saul, he's significant. And God's done something new with David, and there's going to be a new kingdom that forms under David. When Jesus died on the cross, he did the same thing. And it's equally important in human history that Jesus started a new religion and a new kingdom with the death and resurrection on the cross. He didn't do it with power. He did it with a robe torn up and sold between the soldiers. 
He didn't do it with the weapons of this world. He did it with sacrifice and humility. And he went out on his own and put himself in harm way while his disciples could hide in the cave. That's what a leader does. And because Jesus gave his life for us, everybody in this room, like, we've given our life back to Jesus. We're his servants because we saw something greater than ourselves in Jesus Christ that we want to be. And with the gift of the Holy Spirit, we can start to become a different kind of person. So these battles, the significance of what, don't miss what David just did here and how reflective that is of Jesus Christ. He builds a new kingdom. I think it really starts in this moment. He's been in the jail. He's been drooling in his beard before his enemies. But now he just came out. He's not drooling in his beard anymore. He's a king. And he acts in a kingly way by the definition of a godly king. And we've never gotten to see this in the word of God in this kind of way. And it's what God wanted for leadership and for his people. He wins honor, integrity. He uses reason. He teaches restraint. He shows humility. And he acts in conscience. And instead of a bunch of women singing his praises, he's got the hosts of heaven singing his praises. Like a whole different level of what's going on when David does this. Next week, we're going to continue to see the King David rise and King Saul screw up. And this trajectory just keeps kind of happening. Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for these chapters, for your word. Lord, help us to be more kingly and less fleshly, if that's a word. Lord, help us to be more like you and less like ourselves. Lord, when we have an opportunity to strike, help us to restrain ourselves. When we have an opportunity to show love and mercy, may we do it with total humility and grace. Lord, instead of being bitter towards our enemies, may we just have a heart of love. They're screwed up. Lord, you've given us a heart of peace and joy despite our sin. And Lord, may we wish that for everybody we know. Lord, instead of pointing out sins, may we give people an out. <laughs> may we just, Lord, understand that there's an enemy at work here and that we are we are in a larger heavenly spiritual battle. So Lord, give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear, a lot like David and like Jesus. Lord, help us to be more like you. Uh, help us to learn from friendship. I want to pray for that too, Lord. Lord, if there's anybody in this room that doesn't have a friend like Jonathan, Lord, I just pray you build those friendships amongst the people in this room. May we know we have loyalty, friendship, camaraderie, not because we've, we're great people, but because we seek you. And Lord, I just pray that everyone in this room knows that they got people that have their back and that they have a friend. Uh, and even though we don't see each other all week, uh, Lord, we know we have that kind of friendship on our side. And Lord, I just pray for the, the bonds of friendship to continue to grow between people in this group. As we study the word together, where two or three are gathered in your name, you're there too. And so Lord, I just pray for your Holy Spirit to build those friendships, build those connections as we live life together. Uh, and Lord, as we move towards your kingdom, help us to do it in a way that honors you and, and lifts you up. In Jesus' name we pray.
If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media. 